Several years ago, I think now, a couple years ago, I met this precious man. Uh, he and his wife, uh, they are part of a powerful, powerful ministry uh, that is global, and that's called Convoy of Hope. He'll talk about that in a little bit, so I'm not going to steal his thunder about that. I want him to share some of those things that God is doing through their ministry. Uh, but as a result of that, we got to know him some and uh, just appreciate him so much and all that he does for the work of the Lord and for God's people. And he has graciously come uh, here this morning to open his heart and to open God's word for us. So would you put your hands together, give a warm welcome to Heath. Come on, Brother Heath. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Pastor, thank you. It's, I really enjoyed just spending time with you last night and this morning. It's a privilege to be here. And I remember being here, I think it was in uh, January 2018, if memory serves me right. I remember being here just sensing there's a hunger for the presence of Jesus and an honor for his word. And not all churches are created equal. So it's a privilege to be back. What I want to talk to you about today is the nearness of God and um, walking in humility before the Lord. Uh, if you have your Bible or your device, we will be in Numbers chapter 6 today and um, probably all over uh, the word as well. Um, Pastor mentioned Convoy of Hope. That's where I have the privilege of serving, and I want to thank you. It's been a privilege to partner with you um, as a church over the years. Um, we've seen God do some amazing things right here in Chicago and around the world because of your generosity and your compassion. We are living in an age when Jesus said in Matthew 24, the love of most will grow cold. Uh, love is a sign and a wonder. When you simply love people, it takes them off guard. It's almost as if loving others, expecting nothing in return is a new idea again. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. So it has been a privilege to partner with you through a convoy of hope to love others. Uh, love God and love your neighbor. That's about as deep as it gets. Everything else is mere commentary. So number six, starting in verse 22, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. There is a place that we can come to before the face of God. It is possible to experience a deep, intimate connection with Jesus. And when we come before the face of God and we look into his eyes, his fiery eyes, his eyes, according to the Apostle John, who wrote, from an island where he was banished called Patmos, he refers to the mighty one whose eyes burn with fire. It is possible to come before the face of God and catch a reflection of who we were intended to be in the eyes of God. It's important to remember that God does not anoint who we pretend to be. 
God does not anoint who others perceive us to be. But when we choose to just step, fill the shoes God has placed us in and be who we are in Christ, identity apart from Christ is decrepit and incomplete. When people just say, you know what, I'm just going to be myself. No, you cannot just be yourself. You cannot just be authentic apart from Jesus because we are found in him. Are you with me? But it is possible to come before the face of God and look into his eyes and catch a reflection of who we really are. My wife, Allie, puts it this way. You are God's favorite place to be. To the prostitute who last night did things she never intended to do simply because she needed to feed her kids today, I want to say to you, wherever you're watching or listening from, you are God's favorite place to be. To the dad who has let his family down repeatedly because of the cycle of sin and he feels ashamed today and is hiding and is terrified to be open and transparent for fear of what other people may say or do to him. You need to know, sir, wherever you are watching or listening from, that you are God's favorite place to be. To the one who has walked with Jesus purely and blamelessly for 40 years, you are God's favorite place to be. And what I'm learning over the years, though, is that we are all as close to Jesus as we want to be. So it doesn't matter where we come from. It doesn't matter how we were raised. We have all been given equal, direct access before the Father because we have a high priest who sympathizes with us in our time of need. That's what Hebrews teaches us, right? And what I'm discovering over the years is that there are different ways we can connect with Jesus in a more intimate way. One of them is recorded in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. The Bible says, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. There are some rewards that the sovereign one withholds only for those who are passionate seekers. It's one thing to seek. It's another thing to diligently seek. What does it look like to diligently seek? It looks like waking up in the morning and before you pick up your phone to check what ESPN had to say about the bears, you sit down in your chair and you spend time with Jesus. Before you open up your device to check your email because you've got, if you're like me, you get phone calls and text messages and emails from your team all over the world. And so when you wake up, before you start your day, you've already got a long to-do list. Before you touch your email, before you go to your social media, you spend time with God. That's what it looks like to diligently seek God. To diligently seek God means you watch over your heart and you do not confuse discernment with your assumptions. To diligently seek God means you don't dogmatize your opinions because at the end of the day, it is the word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword. There's something about diligently seeking God and it's not just for the highly educated. It is not just for the holy ones. It is an invitation to each one of us that regardless of who you are and where you come from, we can know God if we will diligently seek him. And fortunately, seeking God diligently does not require a 25-mile sprint. Seeking God diligently starts with a step because we are, he has come as close to us as he possibly can, thanks to the cross. We also know we can know God through prayer. And the list I'm giving you today is not exhaustive. It's just a few things I thought of. Jeremiah 33, verse 3, call to me. I will answer you. 
Wow, what a privilege. Prayerlessness is pride. To think we can wake up in the morning and not breathe is foolish. We choose to not breathe the air of God when we do not pray. Prayerlessness is pride, if you think about it. Like we're going to live our life created in the image of someone we don't talk to. No, the Bible says, call to me and I will answer you. He answers after we call, which means if we don't call, some answers never come. Call to me and I will answer you, but I won't just answer you, I will show you. You know, God doesn't just answer prayer, he shows prayer. Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know. What I'm discovering over the years is there's something beautiful about bending my heart toward God in prayer. And when I talk to the God who spoke the universe into existence, remember, God speaks the universe into existence, but when he created humanity, God did not speak. God scoops up a mound of dirt and breathes. So God speaks in galaxies form, but he saved his breath for you. So when we call out to God, he answers us. And as I'm discovering, as I bend my heart towards the face of God and simply pray that I can connect with him. I'm also discovering there's a difference between God is here because God is here. God's everywhere, right? He's the omni one. There's a difference between God is here and God is near. The Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. There's, there's a place before God where he draws near to us. Amazing. What I want to talk to you about today is what happens when we humble ourselves before God. Because we can experience a deeper connection when we diligently seek him, as I've said. We can experience a deeper reality when we pray. We can get closer to Jesus when we draw near to him. But there are also moments when before we diligently seek and before we call out and before we draw near, there are moments when God comes to us. And what I'm learning over the years is that humility is one of those moments. When regardless of what's going on, when we humble ourselves before God, all of heaven invades our space. And for a few minutes, that's what I want to talk to you about today, the nearness of God and the role humility plays. Psalm 138 verse 6 says, God dwells with the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. The Lord, though the Lord is on high, he regards the lowly, the proud he knows from afar. I think I just quoted to you NIV. I'm sorry. I've got too many versions running through my head. The proud he knows from afar. Remember, you know, the Bible says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. I'm discovering in my life that sometimes what I think is spiritual warfare is God trying to get the attention of my proud heart. Because he will oppose the proud. How's it going with you? I'm struggling. I'm in the midst of a season of spiritual warfare. Really? Why do you say that? Things are not just going well. Perhaps it's not always warfare. Maybe God is opposing you. Because he opposes the proud. 
He knows the proud from afar. But to those who are lowly, the sovereign one gets up off of his throne and he dwells with the lowly. I think of 2 Chronicles 7. I know this is a verse familiar to you. I'm just going to read the whole thing. 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, if you could leave that there for a second. The context of 2 Chronicles 7 is this. They just dedicated Solomon's temple. They dedicate the temple, and at the beginning of chapter 7, the presence of God is so strong that the edifice or the building is shaken, and people can't move. I've had this experience a few times where, where you just literally can't move because of the nearness of God. It's a story for a believing believer. But the presence of God was so strong they couldn't move. And then they throw a two-week religious festival or a two-week party for God. They worship, they dance, they play instruments, they feast. Fasting is okay, but feasting is good too. And after a two-week two-week nonstop religious festival, God speaks. What does God say after a two-week camp meeting? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. God appreciates the worship. He appreciates the festival. He's actually okay with the building, but he is so not impressed. He knows them too well. And he knows you too well. And then God speaks, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Oh, so now we see humility plays a role in the nearness of God. If they will humble themselves and pray and seek what? My face. We're going to get to that in a moment. And seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins. I will heal their land. God says, if you humble yourself, if you pray, if you turn, and if you seek my face. There's something about seeking God's face. And regardless of how, no, how long we have walked with God or how ashamed we feel today because of the fact we have not walked with God, what does it look like when we seek God's face? And when we come before God's face, what does he do? One of the primary reasons we don't cultivate an intimate connection with Jesus is because we simply do not understand what he is like. We become a casualty of our misunderstanding. And what we think we know about God gets in the way of who he really is. So what is God like when we humble ourselves, regardless of where we come from, regardless of what the way we are currently living, what does it look like? How does God respond when we humble ourselves? Well, that's what number six is all about. In the Hebrew Bible, each letter has a corresponding number. And so when you read the Bible, you can either see a long number or you can see sentences. Actually, you read it right to left if you read Hebrew, which I don't. I just know enough to be dangerous. But when you would read what we call the priestly blessing in number six... May the Lord bless you and keep you, cause his face 
shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you peace. When you read that, you can either read words or you can see numbers. And to the ancient Hebrew mind, what they would do when they read number six, and typically they just quoted it, they would have it memorized, but when they read number six, they not only read about God, but they saw what God looks like in these verses. Now that may sound weird until you take out your phone and look at your text messages, because you do the same thing. You'll send somebody a text, and then you send them a GIF or a meme or an emoji or something like that, right? Hey, how are you doing today? Two thumbs up, smiley face. What are you doing? You're wanting them to read your text and see your text. And the Hebrew scriptures and the Hebrew mind, it was the same way. When they would read the priestly blessing in the Hebrew, verse 24 has three Hebrew words. Verse 25 has five Hebrew words. And verse 26 has seven Hebrew words. There's much more words in English. But in the Hebrew, you have three, five, and seven. And when you just see three, five, and seven immediately, and this is documented in rabbinical tradition, they would add up the numbers. Am I the only person who adds up numbers? Maybe I'm confessing I have a condition, I don't know. But they would add up numbers. Three plus five plus seven is 15. What is, what are the two letters in the number 15? Well, number one is Yah, and number five is Hey. It's the name of God. And when they would read the priestly blessing, if they stepped back and just added up the numbers real quick, they would see Yah, hallelujah. They would see the name of God. And they believed, and they actually taught their children what God was like by looking at these words. So what does God do? How does God respond? What is God like when you humble yourself and simply seek his face, regardless of who you are and where you come from? That's what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at. At the beginning of the blessing, it says, may the Lord bless you. That word Lord is interesting. In your Bible, it may be capital L, lowercase o-r-d. If it is all capitals, that means that they... They translate the word Lord not from Adonai, which is capital L, lowercase O-R-D, but from the name of God, Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The most ancient Hebrew scriptures have all capitals. This is what's called the ineffable name. A name so holy, so sacred, they never spoke the name out loud. A name so holy that when a scribe would copy the ancient Hebrew scrolls, he would get up and go through a a rigorous process of ceremonial washing, come back, write one letter, get up, go back, go through another ceremonial washing ritual, come back, write another letter, and did it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. The scroll of Isaiah on average would be about 66 feet long. If they made one mistake in the scroll, They threw the whole thing away and started over. Why? Because God's name was on that scroll. His name, so holy, so sacred. And Yahweh had no vowels in it. It was just consonants. So over the years, because God's name was so holy and so sacred and there were no vowels, because they stopped speaking God's name, they actually lost track of what his real name was. We call him Yahweh or Jehovah, but frankly, we really don't know. 
That's how holy his name is. The name you're not supposed to speak, God says, I want you to speak my name. God says, I'm so holy, if you speak my name, you, you won't live, but I want you to speak my name anyway. The blessing, the, the, the climax of the entire blessing here in number six is God's name. Verse 27, it says, therefore, I will put my name on my people. Don't underestimate how powerful it is that you can come before God in prayer and call God by name. Our culture would be a better place if we honored God's name. What does it mean to take God's name in vain? It's less about using God's name as a slang term or a swear term. It's more about ascribing things to God that do not match his name. In the Old Testament, one of the names for God is Hashem, the name. Who are you talking to? The name. His name's so holy, so sacred. That's why when we dishonor someone, we're taking God's name in vain. When we discriminate against someone because of their gender or age or ethnicity, we're taking God's name in vain. Why? Because God has put his name on them because they are made in the image of Hashem, the name. The name you're not allowed to say, I want you to speak my name. May the Lord bless you. The word bless in my research is kind of mind-blowing. I'll give you the word if you want to fact-check me. The Hebrew word is barak, and it is in what is called the pile form. The word bless means to bow down in front of somebody and give them gifts. Just imagine the king of kings. When you come before earthly royalty, you bow before royalty and give them gifts. When you come before earthly royalty, you don't look them in the eyes because you honor them. What does the king of kings do? He gets up off of his throne and he bows before those he died for and he gives them gifts. When the spirit of God calls you and knocks on the door of your heart and you don't respond to him, what do you do? You're looking the king of kings in the face who bows before you and offers you the gift of salvation and you're saying, no, thank you. I'm not interested. When, when we don't let the gifts of the spirit function through our life, what are we doing? We're looking at the kneeling God. We're saying, no, thank you, uh, king of kings. I don't want your gifts. It's amazing. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. God being infinitely great is as high above kings as he is beggars. The high and lofty one bows before those he died for. Amazing. Doesn't that offend your mind a little bit to think that the king of kings bows before you and offers you the gift of salvation? He conquers you with his love, C.S. Lewis says. May the Lord bless you and keep you. 
That word keep is an agricultural term. If you go to Kenya or Tanzania today and you travel with the Maasai people, you'll discover what this word keep means. When they're taking their cattle out into the open country in the evening when the sun, before the sun sets, in order to protect their livestock from predators, what they will do is they will take thorns and build a wall of thorns around their livestock. And then the shepherds will actually get into the wall of thorns and sleep with their animals. This word, keep, is shamar, and it means to build a wall with thorns. It's a shepherding term. First century Jewish shepherds at the time of Jesus, and especially in David's time, long before Jesus was born, they would lie down with their sheep in the open country after building a wall of thorns. So picture this, because we're not just reading about God, we're seeing God. God gets up off of his throne. He bows before us and extends gifts. And then he looks us in the eyes and he wraps his arms around us like a wall of thorns. That's how he keeps you. He does not keep you with a long list of rules and watching to see the first one you'll break so that he can slap your hand. No, he keeps you because he is a good shepherd and according to Isaiah, we all like sheep have gone astray each to his own way and the Lord... The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. No, the good shepherd wraps his arms around his sheep. Why does he leave the 99 to go after the one? Because he takes time to count them. He knew one was missing. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. According to... Um, Orthodox ancient rabbis, the greatest consequence of sin is God's hidden face. Even more so than eternal separation from God, they taught their children. That the greatest consequence of sin is a lack of intimacy with God. You can tell a lot about someone when you look at their face, can't you? In Exodus chapter 33, Moses prayed an interesting prayer. He said, God, show me your face. The Lord responded uniquely, I tell you the truth, no one can see my face and live. And then God says, I will pass in front of you and cause all my goodness to uh, be revealed behind me. It's a euphemism. But Moses prayed, God, show me your face. And God says, no one can see my face and live. But in number six, God says, I want you to bless the people and basically bless them or pray that my face will shine upon them. In other words, God says to Moses in Exodus 33, you can't see my face and live, but in number six, what God said was impossible in Exodus is now available in number six. How many of you know, sometimes the Lord describes things that are impossible just to see if we'll take him at his word because all things are possible to those who believe. The face of God, in Hebrew, the word is plural. If I were to just speak it the way it is, may God cause his panim to shine upon you, or may God cause his faces 
to shine upon you. God has more than one expression on his face at the same time. To the discouraged soul, God has a comforting face. To the rebellious one, God has a loving but stern face. To the afraid one, God has a peaceful face. When God's face shines upon you, you catch a glimpse of all of the kingdom of God right in his eyes on his face, and whatever you need to draw from the face of God is available. God's face or faces, it is plural. And when you look at God's face, what happens? His face shines. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? The earth was formless and void. It goes on to say, God said, let there be light. In the Hebrew Bible, there's one word. It doesn't say, God said, let there be light. There's one word. It's or. It's the Hebrew word for instantaneous, spontaneous, creative combustion, light. God speaks one word and light happens. Amazing. This Hebrew word shine is or. May God cause his face to shine upon you. So the power and the creativity that was there in Genesis 1 is still there on his face when you look at him. I heard somebody say once over the years, I don't know who said it or I would give them credit, but I heard someone say once, there's no such thing as darkness, only absence of light. When you look at the face of God, he shines. So it's God who gets up off of the throne and bows before you, the ones he died for. He gives you gifts. Then he wraps his arms around you. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and he looks at you in the eyes. May God cause his face to shine upon you, his shining face. His face shines. His face always shines. I'm discovering that sometimes when we are seeking direction from God, God doesn't always speak, but God will glance. God, should I go to the left or to the right? There are some ways he guides us with his shining face. And to those, what does the Bible, how do you know that's true, Heath? What does the Bible say? The Bible says God shares his secrets with his intimate ones. There are some things God doesn't tell you if you don't cultivate the connection with him. You say, where's that at in the New Testament? I'm glad you asked. John 16. John 16, 12. I have many things to say to you at this time, but you cannot bear them. There are some things you share with your spouse you don't share with people you work with. It seems normal and logical. The same is true with God. We are the bride of Christ. There are some things he shares with his bride that he doesn't share with anyone else. And sometimes he leads us with a glance. And when we gaze into his fiery eyes and his face is shining, it does something to the human soul. And what can happen is immediately we feel ashamed and embarrassed, but when God's shining face, face looks at us, you never see a condemning face. Amen. Yeah. 
How do we know that? So what the Bible teaches, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. To those who are not in Christ, his face is inaccessible. That's why I can say when you look at his face, you only see a loving face because people who are not in Christ do not have access to his face. His face is hidden. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Aren't you thankful for grace? I heard someone put it this way. Mercy is when God does not give us what we deserve. Grace is when God gives us what we do not deserve. May the Lord be gracious to you. We need God's grace. And I'm thankful for grace. I also know that there's this teaching right now that's circulating the Western church. It's not just the Western church. Unfortunately, we have exported it. But for about, I don't know, 27, 28 years, as far as I can calculate in my brain, this message of grace where we have taken the concept of holiness outside of grace and we turn God, pardon the brash example, I don't know how else to say it. We turn God into a form of a prostitute where we come before God to get what we want without intimacy. And we live our life and do whatever we want because God is gracious. But what I'm finding is God is gracious and we all need grace. First and foremost, I do. But the grace of God demands so much more from us than even the Old Testament law did. Because it's one thing to comply with a set of rules. You can graduate high school if you comply. But you don't have a healthy relationship if you just comply. Good morning, honey. Give you a kiss. Good morning. Goodbye. Going to work. Come home. Hey, honey. Give you another kiss. Good night. What is that? Compliance. There's no connection, right? Grace demands more from us than the law ever did. And holiness is not the same as being conservative. And if we have to compromise the moral standard of Scripture to be relevant, then I suggest God's not involved in any of that. I'm not, I'm not, saying, that, I'm not saying that God doesn't speak in a language we understand. Remember, the Ninevites worshipped a fish god. And when Jonah was swallowed by a fish and he walked into the ancient city and preached the word, the word to them, they repented. Why? Because God took truth and packaged it in a language they could understand. Now we understand why the whole city repented. He smelled like three-day-old tuna nuda casserole. Why didn't God have him swallowed by a hippopotamus? They didn't worship a hippopotamus God. They worshiped a fish God. So God is okay with speaking our language. But God will not change his character and adapt to our preferences. Are you with me? So we need God's grace. And when we come before his shining face, he is gracious. He has never turned me away. He's never turned you away either. And in his grace, what does he do? It says he lifts up his countenance upon you. Ancient Orthodox Jewish parents taught their children this about God. That when it says God lifts up his countenance upon you, that God, the King of Kings, who sits on the throne, gets up off the throne, 
He bows before those he died for. He gives you gifts. And then he wraps his arms around you like a wall of thorns. And he looks you in the eyes. And when you look in his eyes, his eyes burn with fire. And his face shines upon you. He knows everything about us. And his face shines. And he is gracious. And when it says he lifts up his countenance upon you, imagine the posture of God. And this is the the word picture that ancient Hebrew parents got of an old Jewish sage or grandfather standing and picking up the toddler in his arms and tossing the toddler in the air. How does God lift up his countenance upon you? God scoops up his child and tosses you in the air like a father or a mother at the park on a beautiful summer afternoon. How does God walk with you? He walks with you like a father tosses his baby in the air. Pastor Joey, I know you do this. Sometimes you throw your kids a little too high in the air. It makes Cicely nervous. And you all have seen this, right? The crazy grandpa, the crazy granny who scoops up the little kids and is so enthralled and infatuated with them, just can't stop tossing them in the air. Why? Because they giggle and they laugh. And where, where is their face locked? Because gravity pulls their eyes down. Where, where does their gaze land? It's always on your face, isn't it? And that's how the Father lifts up his countenance upon you. He tosses you in the air like a parent does a little toddler. And all you have to look at is his face. (laughs) Now we understand how God can say at the end of the blessing that God will grant us peace. Because peace is a person. And peace is a place we come to with God. Peace is a place we come to. Where no matter what happens, we're tossed in the air and all we behold is his face. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord bless Lift up his countenance upon you. Grant you peace. Holy Spirit, thank you for the everlasting word. Thank you that what you spoke to Moses to speak to Aaron to bless the people with is just as new and fresh today in Chicago. I thank you that today we have not only read your word, but we have seen We have seen your posture towards us. We know, Lord, that you dwell in inapproachable light and that, God, you are light in whom there is no shadow of turning. We know that. We also see in your word that you get up off of your throne and you come and bow before those you died for. And you wrap your arms around us and you look us in the eyes. And in your face we find grace. And you scoop us up and you toss us in the air. We don't deserve to be treated this way. But Lord, from the bottom of my heart, I thank you that you do. 
There's no one like you, Lord. I thank you that we know your name. And I pray that you would do the same in our lives today, that you would put your name on us. And we will treasure your name above all. I want to ask a few questions today. I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed. Those of you who are listening and watching online, even right where you're at, this is a question for you. What I know is there are some people who are in the room today and some who are not. And that right now, in God's mercy, he is being gracious to you. And he is inviting you. In his grace, he invites you again. And you have felt shame and you have felt distance with God and you have felt like God has turned his back on you, but no, God has turned his face toward you. And so I want to ask, I want to ask two questions. And the first question is this, if you're listening or watching online or in the room today and you say, I don't know God, I'm not asking if you've been baptized in water. We can have baptismal waters dripping off of our chin and not know God. How do we know that? They can have a form of godliness but deny the power. I'm not asking if you've been confirmed. And I want to be clear, there's value in being baptized in water. It's not a suggestion, it is a command. You may have gone through catechism classes. You may be here regularly. I'm certainly not trying to pressure you, but I do want to take a moment and recognize that God's name is sacred and holy and today we have talked about him and it is wrong to talk about God and not be honest in his presence he has turned his face toward you I'm asking do you know him do you need to make things right with Jesus and he's bowing before you today with a gift a gift of forgiveness. He bows before you with irresistible grace and offers you forgiveness. A fresh start. An abundant life. And I want to be clear, when you start following Jesus, you do not get amnesia. You still have to renew your mind. You still have to make decisions. You still have to perhaps make some wrongs right. But in eternity, you are free. I'm asking, do you know him? And if that's you today and you would say, Jesus, I'm asking you to forgive me. I need to make things right with God. What I'm going to ask you to do is raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to stand up or come forward. I am going to ask you to raise your hand. And starting over here to my left, and if you're listening or watching online, if that's you, right where you're at, you do this. But if this is you, over here to my left, I need to make things right with God. Slip your hand up, please. Up, 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 up. It's a good choice. Yes, yes, good choice. Proud of you. Way to go. Good choice. Thank you, sir. Up, 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 up. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, sir. You can lift it up and put it down. You can lift it up and put it down. Thank you. Okay, I'm proud of you. That takes courage. Yes, ma'am. Takes courage. Takes humility. And when we humble ourselves, God and all of his friends draw near. He knows the proud from afar. 
but to those who are humble or lowly, he dwells with them. That simple lifting of the hand says, God, I humble myself, and God has come to you. Even in this moment, in the presence of God, God has come to you. And right where you're sitting, God is near you. God is not just here, God is near. And God is drawing near to you because you've humbled your heart. To those of you listening and watching online, God has drawn near to you. Sir, in your green chair with your coffee, God has drawn near to you. God has drawn near to you, student. God has drawn near to you, miss. And he is gracious and his face is shining. Is there anyone else you would say, I should have lifted my hand. I think there were seven or eight of you. I should have. If that's you, up and down, up and down. Thank you, sir. Don't ever wait again. Good choice. Yes, ma'am. His face shines upon you. Yes, sir. God, come and draw near to your sons and daughters who have raised their hand today. To those who are watching and listening online, draw near to your children. Oh, God. In a moment, pastor's going to come. He's going to lead you in prayer. He's going to give you instruction. Those of you who raised your hands today, it is not the finish line. It is the starting line. It is the beginning of a journey. You need a family. You need a community. It's called the church. And pastor will give you instruction. If you're visiting in town and you have another city you live in, pastor will tell you what to do. But before we do that, we're just going to worship God. I'm going to invite everybody to stand to their feet. And we are going to come before God and bow in our hearts before the one who bows before us and worship him before pastor comes and gives those of you who raised your hand instruction and leads you in prayer before we dismiss. But let's worship the one who bows before us, can we? God bless you.